Thanks for listening to the podcast from Jonathan Combs and the preaching team at Eastgate Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Check us out on the web at eastgate.church for more. And now, here's the sermon. Good morning, church. How's everybody this morning? Doing well. Glad to see you. Thankful to be preaching through the hymns for a couple more weeks with you. I don't know if you picked up on this one. Maybe you did in that last song, Revelation song. What hymn might we be doing today? Holy, holy, holy. One of my favorite tunes. Used to be number one in the Baptist hymnal. Apparently the new ones have moved it. I don't know about that. Holy, holy, holy. What a wonderful hymn written some hundreds of years ago. And we're in this series and we're going to be in it for a couple more weeks. And it's based on the psalm, Psalm 40, verse 3, which says, He has given me a new song to sing, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see what He has done and they will be amazed. They will put their trust in the Lord. I'm prayerful every week that we do worship together that it's more than just a time to practice your vocals. And I know for some of us, that's a good time. I like to sing. I just enjoy the art of music. Uh, But worship is much more than that. And I'm really hopeful that this is occurring, that many will see what He has done, that the very act of worship and singing and praising would move your heart. Even if if you've come in today and you're not much of a musician or anything, that doesn't seem to be the implication of this text. That the hymn is the hymn of praise that comes from the human heart. And that comes out of a recognition of who God is to us. I pray that that's occurring in our worship. And I certainly pray that worship continues as we preach. That you are amazed at what He's done. The lyrics to this particular hymn, Holy, 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 which we're going to sing together at the end, are written by a British pastor and poet. His name was Reginald Weber. Reginald, you don't see that too often. Feel free to use that for your children. We'll call him Reg, whatever you want to do. But Reginald... Weber, he happened to be born in England in 1783 and was a preacher's kid, which kind of rings special in my heart. And later he succeeded his father in the church his father once pastored. I'm like, okay, this could be me. He, he later felt God's calling to the mission field, though, in 1822. And at the age of 40, was appointed to oversee the Church of England's ministries, all of them in India. He wrote these tunes during that particular season when he was called into the mission. And interestingly enough, none of these things were published. Uh, he, he tried to write, he wrote 57 hymns if you go back and study this man. And, in, and just so you know, there's 52 weeks in a year. I guess he added a few extra. But his intent was that this would be used in the liturgy of the day, that there would be a hymn for every week in the liturgical calendar. And for whatever reason, it didn't catch on. Uh, he was kind of shut down. But then after he did some time in the mission field, uh, some really strange things happened. In fact, on April 3rd, 1826, while he was preaching on a hot day in India, which is a, a pretty hot kind of place, I think, real hot. Uh, he had a large crowd in the hot sun. And he tried to cool off in a pool later and suffered some kind of stroke and died while, swim- while swimming. How interesting. Uh, in, his, in his early 40s and... It was after his death that his widow found these 57 hymns and had them published. And many of them were sung throughout the world. But most of all, holy, holy, holy. You may have heard of some of the other ones, but this one really stuck out. This particular hymn is unique in both its theme and its kind of stately tune. You'll notice that when we sing it again later. It's got this certain class to it. 
almost kingly in a way, and I think that's on purpose. The theme is this idea of perpetually getting behind and singing what has been sung by the seraphim and the cherubim, the angels, throughout history. It's like we get to be a part of what's already being sung in God's throne room. That was the intent of the hymn and of the music itself, I think. Holy, holy, holy begins all four verses. This repetition of the phrase. Now, what do you think of when you hear this word holy? Holy is a funny word. And in Christianity, it should mean something good, but we have to admit something. If someone calls us holy, that might not be a good thing. We often look at that as a negative, like you're holier than thou. Or that's, oh, look at, look at Mr. Holy over there, always looking down on us. Holy has become this funny word. And yet the, the text is not the idea of holy roller, holier than thou. It's the idea of getting on board with what God already is. He's the only one that's holy in and of Himself. We're holy because God is holy. We know what holiness looks like because of who He is. We don't know it innately. And so holiness is what the Scripture teaches. And it does it several times. So if you're confused and you think, well, that's just something in the book of Deuteronomy. No, Peter says it again. It's repeated throughout Scripture. Be holy, for I am holy. Be set apart. Be consecrated, because I am set apart. What does it mean that God is holy? That's what we're going to dig into today, how His holiness really impacts us. Dr. Wilmington, when writing on this, he says, God's holiness is a single perfection that would perhaps come closer to describing the eternal Creator more than any characteristic He possesses. It is the union of all other attributes, as pure white light is the union of all the colored rays of the spectrum. His holiness is deeply what, what all of this pours out of. His love, His mercy, all of it is holy. It pull, pull, pulls out of His holiness. We're going to be in the book of Isaiah chapter 6. There's really one of two texts that you should go for if you're preaching holy, holy, holy. It's either, Revel, either Isaiah 6 or Revelation 4. Don't worry, I'm going to cover a little bit of Revelation 4. But our main text today is Isaiah chapter 6, 1 through 8. And what we're going to see is the Lord here giving the prophet a revelation of His holiness. In the midst of some turmoil in, the, in not only the prophet's life, but in the, the life of, of the people, of, of His people, His holy people at that time, God makes this amazing revelation. And we can understand this, that God's holiness transcends even what we're facing. And I hope and pray that you'll see clearly four insights here into God's holiness. So here we go. We're in Isaiah chapter 6 starting at verse 1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face, with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away 
and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. Here I am. Send me. God bless the reading of His Word. Amen. Four insights into God's holiness. First, His holiness reveals our separation. His holiness reveals our separation. We have to start here. Now, this isn't the good news of the text today. The good news is coming. But it's part of the good news. We can't have, we can't have truly great or good news until we recognize that there's some stuff on the other side that's not so great. That there's some things that are, that are real, that are true, that are hurtful and, and painful. And this, this verse begins with the idea of this holy place, this sanctuary that we really can't come up to. Notice these words. This, this vast gulf is kind of put on display that God is, verse 1 says, high and lifted up. The very train of His robe has filled the temple. This is something beyond. This is something other than that we're not used to. This word holy, holy, holy here appears in verse 3. Now that's interesting. We know that God is holy. Why the, why the triple use? What's the point of that other than it sounds good? Of course the song holy, holy, holy wouldn't be the same if it was just holy. You know, instead of holy, holy. Yeah. I don't think he wrote it so that we could have a hymn some 2,000 years later though. Like why the triple use? Well... There's a lot of reasons perhaps for that. One is this, and we've talked about this quite a bit in church if you've been with us before, that repetition is an indication of something. That when God repeats something in His Word, He intensifies it. And so if He says it twice, it's really important. If He says it three times in a row, it's like maximum. All right? he's, he's saying, if anything is holy, it is God. He is what holy is. In fact, some theologians say this is the idea of Holy in the sense of W-H-O-L-L-Y, that He is wholly different. Entirely, that's, that means as Creator, He is set apart in a way that's different than us. He is wholly holy. <laughs> One writer says, God is holy means that He is absolutely separate from and exalted above all His creatures and creation. And He is entirely separate from all moral evil and sin. R.C. Sproul writes, God alone is holy in Himself. The word holy is used as a synonym for His deity and calls attention to all that God is. It reminds us that His love is holy love. His justice, holy justice. His mercy, holy mercy. His knowledge is holy knowledge. His very Spirit is holy Spirit. Another aspect, though, perhaps of the, the three use, and I think this is what the hymn writer saw too, is that the repetition indicates Trinity. That he's talking about the holiness of the triune God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's saying holy are each of the Godhead. Holy is, is His name. John Calvin, when writing on this, he, he agrees. He says, the ancients quoted this passage when they wished to prove that there are three persons and one essence of the Godhead. And I have no doubt that the angels here describe one God in three persons. Notice, in fact, in verse 8, look at this again. He says, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? There's this funny thing that God talks about in this idea that He is plural, that He is us, but one God and three persons. We see this right in the beginning in Genesis 1. 
Now here's what's occurring. Here's the backdrop so that you don't look at this and go, okay, I, I get it. God is holy and lifted up. He's above. He's beyond. Why is He showing up at this particular time? I, I think this is really important. There's a reason that Isaiah begins this particular verse within the year that King Uzziah died. Most of you don't know who that is. I never met King Uzziah. He lived a long, long time ago. I know what I know about him from Scripture. And I know that probably there was this was a tough time to be in Israel. Because something about King Uzziah that many don't know is he reigned longer than any other king. Longer than David, longer than Solomon, longer than Hezekiah, longer than Josiah. All the ones that we know of that are the really good kings. Uzziah reigned longer than any of them. 52 years, in fact, he reigned. Now that's pretty impressive for any rule. And so what does that do to a nation? Well, it stabilizes it. They've, they've been dealing with the same type of political structure, the same type of, of laws, the same type of military strategy, and he did a lot of great things in his, in his younger days. In those first 40 years, he was quite efficient. Now, he got a little prideful in the end, and I'm not digging into that today, but he had some problems. He thought he could go into the Holy of Holies and got struck with leprosy, okay? So that's wild. A lot of these guys do this. They start well and they finish poorly. Old folks in the room, like you're in your last quarter, finish well. It's not common in the Bible. It's not. And even good men aren't good fathers. There's some funny things about Scripture that, that are takeaways, I think, that stick, stay the course. You could do a lot of great things, but Chronicles remembers this guy who broke into the temple and got struck with leprosy. That's, that's rough. But until that moment, this is what the people saw. And they probably didn't know all the details of that story. What they saw was our nation is powerful. We are spreading out our borders. Our military is strong. He's following the Word of God for most of his life. We're, we're a people of the book. We know who we are. And we're successful. And now he's dead. And now, just so you know, a knucklehead's about to follow him. That was kind of the habit of the kings of Judah. Good one, bad one. And it was like the bad ones were so bad that they almost didn't make the good ones good enough. Eventually, God does the Babylonian thing. We've been there. King Uzziah has passed away. And in that moment... So, so the question then is, God shows up often when things are really, really down. I don't get any indication here that this is the first vision for Isaiah. In fact, he's already written, written several chapters. He's going to have more visions after this. I think this one is, is labeled this way for a reason. In the moment, just picture this. In the moment when the king who we've been counting on and depending on dies, I see who's really king. And that's important. That maybe even Isaiah himself had some sense of comfort. But in the moment when all that's been stripped away, who does he see? The true king of kings. The one that's always been in charge. The real ruler behind the scenes. He sees him in all of his glory. I think it's a reminder not only to Isaiah, but also to the people who Isaiah is going to be commissioned to speak before. He's reminding them who the real king is. No matter who sits on the throne, God is king. That needs to be true in our life. That's one of those timeless principles we talk about in Scripture. That's still true. doesn't matter who gets elected for state or federal government. It doesn't matter who seems to be the superpower in our world. They are but ants compared to Him as power and king and ruler. And we shouldn't get so shaken up by the way things ebb and flow in our life. Because we recognize if we would just step up with Isaiah today and see him sitting on his throne in all of his glory, 
It's a good reminder of who He is to us. There's two, two words for the Lord, word Lord here. The first use is Lord Adonai, which is perhaps for the reason that, that, that John later will say, is that this implies perhaps Jesus Christ Himself. If you go to the book of John, He tells us that Isaiah is speaking of Christ here. Later on you see the word Lord. In some of your versions it should be capital L-O-R-D. That's Yahweh. They often say Yehovah or Adonai for that. That means Lord, His covenantal name. Now we have these seraphim showing up. This caused me to go astray this week, y'all. I'm just going to admit this to you. Because every time I jump on something, I'm like, okay, I've not done a lot of research on that. I did all this research this week trying to figure out what is going on with angels. Like, angelology is a thing. Did y'all know this is this grand study of like the angels of Scripture? And just so you know, there's not that much Scripture about it. So a lot of it is people's opinions and conjectures. And maybe some people are right. I don't know. There's very little mention of seraphim. Other than we know the word seraph means fiery. Strangely enough, the same word is used to describe the serpents in Exodus that struck the the people as they were coming in the wilderness. Seraph is used there too. This is the idea of this fiery being that has six wings. Majestic. I think these things are real. I think Isaiah saw them for what they were. I think that's going to be surprising for us to see one day. There's cherubim too, and it seems like they have multiple heads. I don't know what's going on with that. I'm curious to see it all. I think probably I'm going to have to wait till glory, but we'll, we'll see. We'll see if the Lord shows up a little early. I don't know. But this, this particular thing I thought was interesting. A lot of writers wrote on this. This idea that they have six wings might just... I mean, it may not mean much to you, but it, it was something for me to, to chew on because they only needed two to fly, so it's kind of weird. Like two, two wings are actually doing the work, but the other two wings are all about reverence. Isn't that wild? Like two wings are just there to cover his eyes. Now that seems difficult to move about the building, but God is so holy in this holy place and it seems that these seraphim are constantly in attendance of a holy God that they cover their eyes from His brightness. And these aren't, these aren't creatures that we know of have ever sinned. They, they are pure in the sense of their own, their own holiness, but compared to God, they cover their eyes. And they cover their legs, their feet. This is the idea of humility. The idea of covering one's lower extremities is something we do because we know that those are those those hidden places, right? Those private places. That's the idea of this text too, that they've covered their their humility. They've covered their feet in humility. (laughs) What would it look like to have this approach to God like they have approached to God? Like two wings for reverence, two wings for humility, and two wings for service. I think there's, I could have preached just that. Like I could have preached the angels, although that would have been really out of my style, but in glory, all of this, he says, holy, 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 the whole earth is full of his glory. Hannah declares something similar to this in, in the book of 1 Samuel. She says, There is none holy like the Lord, there is none beside you, there is no rock like our God. He's unique. He's other than. And what does that do to us? It makes us aware that there's a, there's a chasm. And that's on purpose. There, there's a reason for God's holiness put on display that we might look at it and go, wow, He's far off. It's not so that He would stay far off. 
I know this can, this can be confusing for some. Probably some of your friends and family, some of the people you talk to, they might feel like God is super distant. And that has to do with His holiness. But in Christ Jesus, He is, he is part of the chasm. He has united us with, with the Lord. That is something Isaiah didn't experience. Something you and I can through the Holy Spirit. Now, how in the world is God other? Well, here's a couple of things, a couple of big words. Those note takers in the room that want to just really blow your brain a little bit. He's eternal. That's the first. He's eternal without beginning or end. God exists outside of time. He was, He is, He will evermore be. That's, that's mind-boggling in and of itself. He's not created. He's creator. He's always been. That has to do with this other word, aseity. That's a big word. It's one of them, them good words you can use at the water cooler. God is uncreated. His existence is grounded in Himself. He's not dependent on anything else. He's simplicity. And that He's not the sum of His parts. He's indivisible. He's triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's omniscient. All things are known by God from all eternity. He's omnipotent. All-powerful, nothing is strenuous. Can you imagine nothing being hard to do? I'm so stuck in my body. (laughs) I cannot fathom a God who never tires. Nothing is beyond His ability. He's omnipresent, fully present everywhere. These are just a few. This is, I think, what the what the, the hymn writer was talking about. First verse of the hymn we're going to sing together soon. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning my song shall rise to Thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Have you understood this first part first? That God is uniquely other than. He is holy. And that reveals something about our separation But He's not done there. He doesn't leave us distant. But we can't get to Him until we first recognize that we are far from Him. This is why some preachers used to say you got to get people lost before you can get them saved. There's some truth to that because if we don't realize we need a Savior, then we're never going to accept one. We have to first realize that God is wholly different than us. And in order for us to come before Him, we need a Savior. And He is Jesus. The second insight that I see from this text is His holiness exposes our sinfulness. So not only do we see that we are distant, but we also see that we are broken. That there's something uniquely wrong with us. Our sinfulness is on display. You see this clearly in verse 5. And I think this would happen to any of us. No matter how we might feel today, if we were to see the King of kings and Lord of lords, we would have a similar thing to say, Woe is me. Whoa, whoa, whoa. God showed up in a moment I didn't expect. And all I can say is, I'm lost. A better translation perhaps than that, you'll see in some others. King James, for instance, or NIV. NIV says, I am ruined. King James says, I am undone. I am undone. That means when I come before you, I I am doomed. I am ruined. I'm undone. I'm I'm lost before you. Who, Who am I that you would approach And speak to me. Woe is me. A passionate cry of despair. One writer says, If we ever see God, we will immediately see our sin. 
I pray that happens to you even now. I think that's the moment of impact for me. It's that the moment I saw God, I recognized how much I needed a Savior. The moment for me was young. Maybe it took you longer. Maybe you're still chewing and working on this. I pray God continues to stir in your life. At six years old, I had an awareness that whatever my family had, I did not have. Now, I know you might say that's young, but I think a young person can understand some basic things about truth. One of them being that there's something wrong with me. That I'm, I make mistakes. I tell lies. I don't share well. <laughs> I want what I want. I'm selfish. I say mean things to my siblings. Like These are the things a six-year-old might can be aware of. Not all, not all of them. You'll meet some six-year-olds that think they are perfect and sinless. They're not ready for a Savior. They're going to they're gonna find out. They're going to come to know that, wait a minute, you, you're not the king of your little universe. I know it feels that way. I came to that awareness at six, and I know God has continued to stretch that and make me understand that, but I realized there's something not right with me and that there's something perfect about God, and I want to get there. That's all it really takes. That's the sinner's prayer. Here I am, Lord, a sinner. Save me. Here I am, Lord, I'm broken. Set me free. This is Isaiah's response. He says, I am undone. I am lost. Woe is me. Because why? I am unclean. I have unclean lips. Here, I think he's already hearing. Notice, notice what he says in verse 4, just before that. He says, the foundations of the threshold are shaking at the voice of Him who called. Who's Him? That's the Lord. We don't know what He said yet, but He's already saying something because Isaiah says, I, the, the, the ground itself, the, ho the house is filling with smoke as the Lord is speaking. What is He saying? I think He's saying what He's saying in verse 8 the whole time. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Because look at Isaiah's response. It can't be me. Because who am I to speak? I'm a man of unclean lips. My mouth is not capable of delivering the message of God. Now that humbles me because I feel that. It baffles me that God ever called me to, the, to, to do this at all. <laughs> and the things that run through my mind sometimes and the things that I desire to say or do say at times. And yet I come just like Isaiah and say, you know, I'm a person of unclean lips. And the good news is I'm from a people of unclean lips. All of y'all have come in here today and either said or thought to say something not right, maybe today. Certainly it happens on occasion, lies or gossip or, or cursing or things that would be little or tear down. This is something common to the language of man. He says, I have an unclean tongue. My very lips are unclean. That is the idea that I'm not... I'm not clean to come into the sanctuary. This idea of cleanliness is, is big for them. It should be for us, but we've kind of lost this a little bit. They, 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 they had all these, these rituals and things that they had to go through if they were unclean. And he's saying, look, God, you've showed up in your mighty temple calling me. I shouldn't even be in this place. I'm a mess. His holiness exposes our sinfulness. Do you see this? And he says... For my eyes have seen the King of kings. My eyes have seen your glory, the Lord of hosts. Who am I? When Isaiah compares himself to God, he later writes in Isaiah 64, but we are like an unclean thing. All of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. 
We are all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. He had, this might seem dark or depressing to you, but he had the right view of himself. I've been kind of doing this a few weeks now, I feel like, but like tearing down what culture tells us isn't important to me, but sometimes it almost has to be done. I'm not trying to be anti-culture, but when the culture tells us or society or, or some teacher or something tells you that, you know what, you're perfect and you're good just the way you are, that sounds really great. That sounds really positive, but it's, it's, it's only partial. It doesn't give the whole picture. Because we come into this world, the Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. There's no out clause there. And I have little children and I know they come out that way. I don't have to teach them this. They come out sinful. And so did you and I. And it's better news to tell you, I am unclean. And you are unclean. And yet the God of the universe loves us. That's better news. It's better news than lying to yourself because let's just be honest, you know. You know what you do. You know what you think. And there's some, there's some dark stuff in there. And if it's not recent, it's in the past. Some of you might look back and go, how, how, could, how could I possibly overcome this? That's how you really feel. Even though you might tell others, oh, we're, we're good. We're innately good. And well, no, we're not. We're innately bad, but we're innately loved by a holy God. Who loves us and changes us. Changes our whole perspective. Changes our walk in this world. Gives us purpose. Gives us meaning. That's so much greater news. And that's what He's doing in Isaiah. And it's a picture of what He does for each and every one of us. That if we would just come, noticing the distance, the separation, revealing to us our very sin and going, I'm unclean. I'm a mess. And admitting that. Coming with not only admittance, but repentance and confession and knowing, I'm laying all this at your feet now, God. Do in me what you did in Isaiah, what you've done throughout the saints of old, what you're going to do for me today. Clean me up and make me yours. That's better news. That's what Peter, in fact, saw too. This, this came to our minds this week as we were studying the story of Peter when Jesus first arrives on the scene. Go to Luke chapter 5. You'll see this story of where they go out on the fishing boat in like the middle of the day and Jesus tells them to cast on one side and they're like, okay, whatever. We're fishermen, but this ain't going to work. Uh, whatever, Rabbi, let's do this. And all of a sudden they get this amazing amount of fish, so much so that it was miraculous and unexplainable. They knew that something funky had happened. And to that, Peter says to Jesus, verse 8, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. This is what happens when you come to a holy God in truth. You say, I'm sinful. It's an important piece of our approach to God every single day, I think. This is why in the Lord's model prayer, there's a piece of that as, that is confession. Remember the part, forgive us our sins. Lead us not into temptation. Not only repentance, but also protection. Help me, Lord, to walk a different path. This is the Lord trying to teach them how they might pray. Peace, a piece of prayer is certainly repentance. There's no doubt. There's thanksgiving. There's gratitude. There's repentance in the heart of it. I'm a sinful man, but the Lord says what? He doesn't leave Peter there. He says, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. I'm going to give you a new destiny, a new purpose. And that's what He does in each and every one of us. 
I've noticed something that when we meet someone greater, it always exposes our own situation. Now run with me for just a moment here. This has probably happened to almost every single one of you. Either in athletics or academics or even, even those gamers in the room. I've met people like, I, I, thought, I thought in high school and like college, I, w- I played way too much Madden. I'll just come right out and admit that. Way too much Madden football. With my buddies, we'd come over and have Madden nights. I remember when you could first start doing gaming online and I got on there and I'm like, I'm about to wreck. I'm about to wreck some people and got slaughtered again and again because I realized there's people that live their whole lives in their mom's basement and I can't beat them. They're undefeated. There's always, when you run into somebody greater, I thought I was, I was a runner in high school and I still, you know, I'm working to get back to the distance running thing, but I used to win all of our, certainly at our school, but all of our conference stuff, I would win it and then regionals would come. And there was guys that could run four minute miles. That's impressive. I was running a 4.30 in high school, and that's pretty stinking fast mile, and I'd be getting beat by 30 seconds. That's half a lap. That's, that's daunting when you've been winning and winning and winning, and you go to regionals and go, this guy is stupid ahead of me. <laughs> when you meet someone greater, it exposes, it exposes something that you're not as great as you thought you were. And God does this on purpose. And it might, I don't know how it makes you feel about Him, but it should make you aware that He is great. And that I want to be just, I just, it's enough for me to be a part of what He's doing. I don't have to be greater than. That's the very words of Satan. Oh, I'm, I'm greater than God. I got Him cast down. I'm so beautiful and perfect. I'm greater than God Himself. We never say those words because we're terrified of what it might mean. But we think them, and we think somehow that God doesn't know. We, we think them in the sense that, you know, my mission, my plan, what I'm about, I am my own God. I do what I will when I want, rather than to ever consider the holy other, the one that is greater. And I just pray every day that you get some sort of exposure. I pray it happens today for sure, that you would just see, come up with Isaiah to the throne room and see this King of Kings who reveals your brokenness, but then sets you free in that. Max Lucado, when writing on a similar idea, he says, you don't impress the officials at NASA with a paper airplane. You don't boast about your crayon sketches with someone like Picasso. And you certainly don't boast about your goodness in the presence of the perfect. It's well put. Weber writes, Reginald Weber, in his second verse of this hymn, he says, holy, 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 all the saints adore thee casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea. All the cherubim and seraphim are falling down before thee, which wert and art and evermore shalt be. That, that is the idea of this very thing that even my greatest crowns I cast at your feet, even these fiery angels fall down at your feet. Have you recognized this for yourself? Stop saying this lie to yourself. You know, I'm good enough. Good enough compared to what? To whom? Instead say, you know what? God loves me. He's got a wonderful plan for my life. And I'm just trying to get on board with what He's doing. I'm just trying to follow Jesus. You know, people might come up to you every once in a while and be like, what is this hope? What is this passion you have? How is it that you live this way? Your response should be, I'm just trying to follow Christ. He's setting me free. Here's the third insight I see in this text. That His holiness 
demands our sanctification. Verses 6 and 7 are pretty odd. I would say very odd in that this seraphim brings a burning coal from the altar and and he says something that doesn't make a lot of sense. He says your guilt has been dealt with, your sins atoned for. He he burns his mouth with a coal. Now, I think this is symbolic. Like this is a vision because obviously Isaiah keeps talking. It would be kind of hard to do if everything was all burned up in there. This is the symbolic thing that God has done, that in the very place you are unclean, I'm going to remove that guilt. It's a picture certainly of what Christ did for us. That this atonement, that in the very way that we should have suffered, He suffered on our behalf. And that Jesus Himself, that God Himself took on the cross on our behalf and died the death we deserved. This is the very idea of this atoning sacrifice that's happening here just in symbol. And quoting Leviticus 11, Peter reminds us this very thing, and I quoted this earlier, 1 Peter 1, 16, he says, Be holy, for I am holy. God is doing something. He desires our sanctification. This is really good news, church. Uh, some, sometimes people get a little confused about this. Uh, uh, God does not desire for you to stay put. <laughs> Notice, and if this is your first time with us, one of our vision statements, our mission statement, if you were, is come just as you are and be forever changed by the love of Jesus. Now, we could have stopped that phrase with come just as you are and hang out with Jesus. Come just as you are and see Jesus. But that's not the way the phrase goes. And we were careful in this. And that second part might bug some of you, and yet it's super true. Be forever changed by the love of Jesus. We're not the ones that are going to make that happen, but Christ in His mercy and love and saving grace are going to change you. I never lie to people anymore. I used to think like I was a traveling salesman when I was trying to offer people the gospel. Like, I don't want to give them any bad news. I want to tell them the rainbow vac works perfectly. It never has any mistakes. But instead of that lie now, when people say, but, but isn't God going to ask me to do this or change this? And I'm like, yeah, he sure, he sure is. And what you don't know is that's way better. You don't recognize that what you're doing and the things that he wants to change are hurting you. Does God want to change me if I follow Him? Yeah, yeah, He does. Because God is is holy, and you are not. And His holiness for you is better. It's better. He, He desires our sanctification. In the very area where we're broken, He'll often use that for His glory. In the very spot where Isaiah says, my mouth is unclean. Well, let me just go ahead and sanctify that. Let me burn that iniquity away. And some of the very areas where I've had the most struggle and most most problems are the very spots I feel like I can really help others and really speak truth into their lives. I bet that's true for you. Because God demands sanctification. This is what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians. He says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. It doesn't get more clear than that. We're always asking, God, what's your will? And we're living in filth. Well, I can tell you, first of all, one of of the things He desires is that you would be holy. And you're never going to perfectly reach that. I'm not saying that we're going to be Christians at this church. We're not going to fail anymore. This is a sinless church. That reminds me of this bullhorn guy that used to come onto ECU's campus and tell everybody, I haven't sinned in two years. And I'm like, you just did. I'm going to walk off. He called me out. I was wearing a pink shirt one day. And I'll still rock pink. I got no problem. I don't know what his ailment with was. With I had this 
polo pink shirt. And at the time, we were double popping. I had it double popped. I had another thing under it. It was double popped. He's calling me out. I haven't sent in two years. What are you wearing pink for? And I'm like, dude, I'm late to class. I want to talk because you're confusing me. But I just went on my way. We, we struggle all the time. And yet we come back to this truth that God's will for us is our holiness. And that the thing that I desire more is that I'm, I'm more like Christ tomorrow than I am today. I'm not going to be perfect tomorrow. That'll happen in glory. But that I'm just more like Jesus tomorrow. Am I growing? Am I looking more like the Savior? God presented Christ as this atonement. This is what Paul writes in Romans. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are justified though, freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. Notice the hymn writer how he puts it. He says, Holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee, Though the eyes of sinful man thy glory may not see. Lord, only thou art holy. There is none beside thee, perfect in power, in love, in purity. Have you confessed your sin and by faith received this atonement? This is daily. This is constant. We do this again and again. We come before Him tomorrow saying, I'm a man of unclean lips. Repentance is ongoing. It's not a one and done. Salvation is. You come to salvation, you put your faith in Christ, and you work the rest of your salvation out with fear and trembling. The fourth insight is this. And I got a, I got a boogie. I got excited, y'all. Man. Thanks for starting the time clock back there, y'all. We've been here all day. His holiness qualifies our sending. His holiness qualifies our sending. He doesn't just send like anything else. He says, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And, and what, is, what is it that He's sending us to do? Well, He sent Isaiah with the message that the people need to repent. This was His ongoing message. That you are far from Me. I desire sanctification. I desire to bring you back into reconciliation. But the people never do it. They disobey. Our message is similar in a way, and yet we have a better offer. <laughs> it's it's more fun to be a prophet now. It's more fun to be a minister of reconciliation now because we have the whole picture. We know what, what God has done in, in Jesus Christ. We have great news. It, I don't know why we call it good news. It's great news. It's, and, and it's amazing news that we are messed up, we're broken, and yet God loves us this much. That's amazing. That's amazing. And He qualifies this sinning in His holiness. He says, who will go before me? Who will, who, will, who, will you, who will go on my behalf? And are the, the response is just left out there. Isaiah responds, but this call is for each and every one of us. And I think for a lot of us, it's sitting on the table. It's that, it's to, maybe, maybe the wrong thing is that we look at it like some kind of bill that we have to pay later. I got a lot of those at the house. I put those things by the computer and I'm like, I'm going to get to that later. I don't, I don't want to deal with that today. And that's a lot of y'all. I've been through seasons in my life where I left those bills there so long that I'd get a new bill and it would tell me I forgot to pay that bill. I'm like, oh man, this is bad. But that's not the kind of sending that God is offering something way better than that. This isn't, a, this isn't like a detriment to my life. Isn't it funny that we would look somehow at our sending at the gospel and say, but I'm not one of those. 
God didn't tell me to go to India. He didn't tell me to go on the mission field. But that we would look at this gospel and this who, who will go for me, whom shall I send? And we'll say, well, I'm hoping God sends somebody, but it ain't me. I'm not ready to pick that bill up and pay it, but it's not that at all. It's an opportunity to see God move. You know, the teacher always learns more than the student. It always happens. And to get on board with the mission of God, you get to see God move. Better than any story you got to hear. We do these mission reports sometimes here, and they're great, and you hear these wonderful things that God's doing. But you don't know it till you see it. You don't, you don't know it till you experience it. And you can experience it today. You don't have to get on a plane. And no magic happens on a plane, just so you know. God doesn't sprinkle evangelism dust on you when you hop in a plane. Now you're a super missionary. Go and tell. No, if you're not doing it here, you're not going to be great at it there. It should be stirring in your heart now. And certainly, we're going to be a lot better at speaking the gospel in our native tongue rather than go somewhere where we can barely speak the language. That's funny that we would think we would be better. We need to catch a heart for evangelism now. He says, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? I want to say like Isaiah, and I'm praying for you, my friends. Here I am. Send me right where I'm at. Right to my family. For some of you, all you got to do is go home and you're sent. All you got to do is go back to your home today and you're sent. All you got to do is go to work tomorrow. There's countless people there that need to hear that God is good and holy and He's separate from me, sure, and I'm sinful, but Jesus. But Jesus. That's news everyone needs to hear. I need to hear it. Don't be anxious about your calling, my friends. The Holy Spirit will teach you what to say. This is what the, the, the Gospel writer Luke writes. He says, Do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what should you say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. This is the idea that just go. If He's telling you to go, go. Don't sit there and rehearse. You don't have to get in the mirror and say, well, this is what I'm going to say because it ain't going to work. They're going to ask you a question that you didn't expect and that is okay. The question is yes or no. Are you going to pick it up and say, I'm good, let's do it. Yes, it's a yes from me, Lord. That's the only question that's laying out there. Whom will go for me? Me, I'll do it. And then He's going to show up in a mighty way. And if I don't know the answers, you know what's funny? People don't seem to ever mind when I tell them, you know, I don't know that one. I've not been asked that question before. In fact, that builds people up. They're like, well, especially with me, they're like, oh, it's the pastor, you know, and they stump me, you know, woohoo. I'm not that smart. I'm, I, that's just the hair, you know, it's not, I'm not that smart. I think I have great hair, okay? Do you see where I was going with that? I like my hair. Jeez Louise. But I recognize that people. People just need the truth. They need to know that I care. And it's okay that I tell them, you know, I've never heard that question. That one's a new one for me. I'm gonna, but I always do this, and I would encourage you to do this, and you can call me. It's not like I'm gonna know all the answers, but you can do it. Go for it. Hey, this person asked me this. And like, hey, that's new for me too. Cool. Let's learn together. Just tell them I don't know, but I'm gonna get back to you. I'm gonna do the research and find out what the Lord is saying about this. God cares more about your availability, folks, than He does your ability. This has always been true. This is why God picks some really clowny kind of people. Just funny people He picks throughout Scripture because He cares whether you'll say yes or whether you'll say no. If you'll say yes, He'll bless. Exodus 4, it says, Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and of tongue. 
Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, Moses goes on to do some pretty, pretty amazing things for the people of God and for God and His glory. And yet he says what a lot of you might say, I'm just not that good with my words. God's like, okay, I made your mouth. I think we can do this. Is it yes or is it no? Say yes with me today, church, with Isaiah. Whom shall I send? Here I am. Send me. Send me. The last verse of Holy, Holy, Holy. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, all Thy works shall praise Thy name in earth and sky and sea. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. God is holy. He is distant, and yet in Christ He is close. And He is ours. And now He has a new call for us. Let me end by reciting Revelation 4. Because interestingly enough, John sees a very similar thing to Isaiah. John is taken up in a vision. Revelation 4.1 says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open to heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living like, a, like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight." And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes are all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Amen. They never cease to praise Him. Now after reading that, I think you know why maybe I didn't choose that text today. <laughs> Because there's a lot there that takes, would take me hours. John heard this same song that Isaiah spoke. I wondered, would you start now, church? Recognize His holiness. Confess your sinfulness. Receive His atonement as sanctification. And then say, yes, here I am. Send me. Let's pray together now, church. Heavenly Father, we ask. We ask that You would show up in a really mighty way in our life, Lord. <laughs> That this holiness, I, I pray it's on display in our life, that we can't miss it. I'm praying for each and every one of us in the room right now that the, the, really the end game, the, the final response of all of this is, whom shall I send? That's why God shows up to Isaiah. That's why He showed up, I think, in the person of Jesus, is that people might hear the good news and be saved. That it doesn't stop there. It wasn't just a, a physical act by a loving God, but 
Now He gives us purpose and meaning that we could be a part of this ultimate plan He has for His people. That's, that's amazing news. I'm, I'm surprised by that again today. That He would use someone like me, some, someone like the people in the congregation, that the church as a whole, that He would use broken people. And yet it's part of His plan. And He's simply asking what He asked to Isaiah, what He again asks to Peter and many others throughout Scripture. Whom will go? The news is this. It's great news. Yeah, we're broken. Yeah, we're distant. Yeah, we're separate. Yeah, we're sinful. This is all true. But the great news is that God still loves us. I'm amazed by that news. And yet you, you offer the same thing to us that you've offered throughout the centuries. Whom will go? God, I'm, first of all, I'm convicted by that. I'm repenting personally that there are times where I say, ah, maybe not today, Lord. It's not a good time right now. And you like to throw them in my face sometimes, Lord. That's just how you treat me. I bet you do that to a lot of people that are, that are your faithful followers. That someone random would just pop into my life and have need. It happens all the time to me. And I, I apologize that often I say, Lord, you know, it's just, I'm busy. I'm going here. I'm doing this. It's funny, Lord, that I, I have priorities above your ultimate priority for me, which is who will go? <laughs> you repeat this in the Great Commission, Lord. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. It's like your big mission statement for us as your, as your, your sons and daughters of the faith. And yet, why am I too busy? Why do I think my priorities are bigger? I apologize for that today, Lord. I repent of that. I know you're going to send me more of these. You're going to test my, my repentance and my obedience. I have no doubt, Lord. I pray you would give me strength to do better. That I would say yes. I'm saying it now, Lord. I pray for your church right now. Would you, the church, say with me, here I am. Lord, here I am. Send me. Send me to my family, my, my loved ones. Many of them don't know you. Give me opportunities there. Lord, send me into my workplace. My co-workers are far from you. Many of them are far. That separation is real. And yet I know you want to bridge that gap, Lord. I know you do. Would you use me in that? Here I am, Lord, send me. I recognize as well that maybe you showed up today and you're becoming aware in this moment that you are distant from God. As you look at His holiness again today, you're aware, yeah, I'm... I messed up. The things I think, the things I, I do, the things I have done. I'm a, mess, I'm a broken guy. I'm a, I'm a messed up person. I've got, I've got flaws. And I've not really done anything about that. And there's, there's this truth that I can't do anything about it. Personally, that there's nothing on my effort I can do I'm praying for you today, friend. If that's you, you've come in this place and you're aware that your distance is too great. I want to remind you of what Jesus has done. And if you're willing, if you feel the Spirit leading you to confess and believe that you can do that right now. That Jesus Christ, what He did on the cross for you, paid for your sin. It is done. And you can receive that for yourself. If that's you today, pray with me. According to what Paul writes in Romans 10 verse 9, he says, if you would confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. 
We believe that as a church. We stake our faith in confession and belief. If that's you, pray with me. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sin. I believe that today. That you paid for my, my guilt, my shame, my brokenness, my flaws. They're hanging on the cross. You've dealt with it. I believe it. And Jesus, I believe that you are Lord. You are King. You are in charge of my life. And God, I believe that you raised Jesus from the grave. I believe in the cross and the resurrection today. And that gives me a great deal of hope. Not only for the life to come that is beyond this life, but also for now. God, I'm asking, would you set me free to walk according to your purpose? It scares me to say it, Lord, but I'm praying in boldness. Here I am. Lord, send me. Dear friend, if you prayed that with me, welcome to the family of God and we are praying right along with you. The same prayer, here I am, Lord, send me. Restore me of my, my sin. Set me apart. Make me holy as you are holy and send me out where you would desire me to go and where you've prepared me to speak. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray these things. Amen.